Podcast. I'm your host, John Gonzalez in Cleveland. I have a soft spot for Cleveland, Major League. My, one of my favorite sports movies of all time is here. Uh, and I'm joined as I am every week by Isaac Lee, who is in LA. Hey, man. I've actually never seen Major League, but it sounds like a delightful movie if you like it. This is one of those uh, pop culture holes in your frames <laughs> of reference that you need to fill because it's a super fun, it's probably dated. It is dated, but it's a funny sports movie, and I have always enjoyed it. And it's all, even though I, prior to covering basketball, I had never come to Cleveland. I was always like, all right, Cleveland, uh-huh. I'll, I'll root for Cleveland. So I'm assuming this is a baseball movie regarding the Cleveland Indians. <laughs> yes. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Charlie Sheen is in it, a bunch of other people. <laughs> it's good. It's funny. You should check it out. Okay. Um, but I'm here. I'm I'm in Cleveland. The Cleveland Marathon was here today, which is apropos because the NBA playoffs are still going. It feels a little bit like a marathon. But we've got plenty of NBA-related content for you. We've also got a lot of draft coverage. KOC was at the Combine in Chicago. So you want to check out our Ringer NBA Draft Guide. It's really great stuff. And uh, also, Jonathan Charks has a piece on Luka Doncic on TheRinger.com, which was really good. You want to check that out as well. And of course, listen to those two guys along with Danny Chow on Draft Class. Those guys have been killing it. And uh, check out NBA Desktop, which is now two times a week during the playoffs. Jason Concepcion, really smart, really funny, excellent show. We also have Danny Heifetz's piece on the Celtics Cavaliers series up on TheRinger.com. And I'll have a column on the site following game four on Monday night. So please check that out. We're going to talk about the Celtics and the Cavs series later on in the show with Justin Barrier and first time ever from One Shining Podcast and GM Street, Tate Frazier will be here on Heat Check. That should be a lot of fun. But first, Rockets and Warriors just wrapped up game three. And to talk about that, we're going to bring in one of my absolute favorites here at The Ringer. All right, joining me on the other line from the world-famous The Watch podcast from Sources Say, from Group Chat, the host of many other Ringer-related shows. He's also my editor. He is the king of content, the MC Hammer of The Ringer. He's too legit to quit. It's Chris Ryan. MC Hammer? Okay. Do I wear the parachute pants? (laughs) I assumed you already had them. I brought that up because... Uh, Oracle Arena plays Too Legit to Quit all the time, and they're like super dedicated to, to it. So I figured I'd work that in for you. And also, I just assumed you're a big MC Hammerhead. I was more of a young MC guy. If the war between those two was, <laughs> I, I was Team Young MC. You picked the right side on that one. Uh, but I do, I do enjoy the Warriors' undying dedication to all things MC Hammer. So good for them. And they went out and they hammered the Houston Rockets in Game Three. Not a good game, Chris Ryan. The Warriors won by uh, 31 points. They're up 2-1 in the series. And uh, like every other game in either conference finals, it was a blowout and not very interesting. Watch the end of this game or the second half of the game with Isaac Lee, Tate Frazier, and Justin Verrier. Here are some of the things we discussed. Will Alden Ehrenreich be good in solo? How do you think Joe Johnson <laughs> feels right now? Would a lineup of Quinn Cook, Nick Young, Zaza Pachulia, Jordan Bell, and Kevon Looney beat the Kings? This is what the conference finals (laughs) is eliciting at Ringer HQ. And I think it's probably a statement. Look, these are not middleweight fights. They're over so fast. They they don't they feel uncompetitive in in a weird way. 
that I don't think we're really used to because I think what happens is now, like the Heat Check podcast is a perfect example of this. We're talking so much about playoff basketball all the time. We're analyzing it from every micro and macro level. And I think what happens is that we're forgetting that series, postseason series basketball is kind of boring sometimes. And it takes a little while for things to sort themselves out and for other each team to get annoyed at each other. And then when you get to these game fours, I think we're putting a lot of hope on these game fours right now. I'm putting a ton of hope on these game fours, but you're right. Like the the deeper that we get into the playoffs, the more the or the less competitive that these games have seemingly become. And like the conversations that you guys are having at Ringer HQ is what I was talking about here in Cleveland when I was at the queue. And I'm going to talk to Barrier and Tate later on in the program about that uh, Boston Cleveland series. But, you know, uh, for game three of that series, I was sitting in the arena with all the other writers. And by like midway through the third quarter, we were just shooting the shit because the game was horrendous. And it's kind of a bummer. Are you like, you know, on the one hand, we talk about, you know, like assemble this assemblage of talent, like with the Warriors and how, and Chuck's put this on our in our Slack about how it's kind of what LeBron envisioned the Heat were, was going to be back in 2010. And like, you know, we're we love these super teams on paper, but in execution, it's been it's been boring. Are you bored? Well, I think it's important not to get too record store guy about all of it and just be over everything. Mm-hmm. I it is still something singular in professional sports to behold this team firing in all cylinders. I think the thing that I find difficult to, you know, I, I don't find myself super entertained by is you get the best version of the Warriors. Then you get in another game, the best version of the Rockets. And then in another game, you get the best version of the Warriors. I'd like to see both teams show up with both best versions of themselves in tow and get that that game. And I hope I hope that's what we get over the next few because now now we have such a small series. You know what I mean? Now it's going to be every possession and every decision has the weight of the world on its shoulders. I I do find myself a little bit numb to it, but you have to say, I mean, the third quarter that's about as good as a basketball team can play tonight as we saw in the Warriors. It was amazing. They were absolutely phenomenal. It is weird, though. You're right, because I would, yes, I would love for for two teams in the same series to show up on the same night. That would be grand, because it's sort of strange that, like, the series is 2-1 on both sides right now as we record this. The Warriors are up 2-1 right now. But the game that the Rockets won, they were dominant. They looked fantastic. So, in a, in a weird way, this could still be a series, but it hasn't been, we haven't had a game yet. It's just so strange to to watch. Yeah, I think the scariest thing for the Rockets is that the regression that they saw tonight is a regression that they have to account for with the Riza and Tucker and some of the role players falling back to earth. The thing that's going to keep D'Antoni up at night, and it's the thing that I think nobody is surprised to see and nobody ever doubted we'd see it again, is we got Curry back. And if you've got Curry and Durant going for 50 or 60... You know, you're in a world of hurt and you've basically you've basically there are no responses for that. So I don't know what Houston's counter move here is. They missed a ton of easy shots. And I think that that's the one the one silver lining for tonight is Mike D'Antoni has to go home and think, well, we're not going to miss that many layups again. Right. We're not going to miss that many open threes again. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. Like, uh, I think in the first couple of games, 
It looked like the Rockets might be able to take advantage of Curry. Curry didn't seem like he was right. There was a lot of talk about whether or not his his knee was still bothering him. And actually, did you catch during the game broadcast, David Aldridge did a report where he was talking about how there were questions about whether or not Steph Curry was fully healthy. He had only gone two for 13 from three in his first two games. And then, like, literally as David Aldridge was giving that report, Steph Curry drained a three and then just went off. Yeah, and I thought that um, the Warriors were very sensitive to the dam breaking. Uh, There was one play, I think it was in the third quarter, when he was on that going blind run that he went on. And uh, KD had the ball on the wing and specifically like sought out Steph to come over to him to get the ball and get a mismatch. And I thought it was like, you could tell that Durant was like, this is like Steph's hearing Jimmy right now and we got to let him have it. Like we got to let him go. We got to let him get 30 plus. We got to have the the stadium go nuts and have Steph, Steph say, this is my effing house. All that stuff, they wanted him to have this game. So I, I expect that that is actually a bigger win for them than this margin of victory. Yeah, absolutely huge. And you're right. Like when those two guys are cooking, where Kennedy and Steph were cooking, and initially early on in the game, KD looked better than Curry. I mean, Curry hit that one three during David Aldridge's uh, report, but then he missed uh, his next however many before he finally started going. But they combined for 60 points, which was more than the, the Rockets' five starters combined. Uh, they only had five, uh, 58 points for all of the Rockets' five starters. So KD and Steph were killing it. But I think sometimes we forget while we're watching KD and Steph and Clay and Draymond and that like killer lineup when Andre Iguodala is in there about like how good they are offensively. I, I think sometimes we forget how good they are defensively because when they play at that kind of defensive level where they're like really limiting the Rockets' starters and the Rockets, uh, they're running the Rockets off the three point line. Rockets only made 11 3 threes in that game, um, they're killers. I mean, they're they're next to impossible to stop because that defense is and can be everybody as good of it as their offense. Yeah, they had a, they were 23 points on fast break points tonight, and I thought that what I saw from them tonight that I hadn't seen in the first two games was them running downhill. And that, that's that's the home court advantage, right? Like that, that home court advantage is what makes the Rockets miss layups and what makes the... Warriors running down the court look, sound like a like a herd of Jurassic Park dinosaurs. You know when you when you see those guys approaching and you know they could either attack the rim or three guys on that floor can stretch the court and hit from anywhere pretty much inside the half court line. There is no there's no transition defense for that. And I thought that there was just a little bit more zest to their play. You're right, the defense and that's where the defense comes in because they're creating turnovers and they're getting they're getting out on offensive rebound or on defensive rebounds and they're running with it. I also thought it was pretty interesting to uh to see that when it's a KD centric Warriors offense, um it's not that it's ISO or that it's slow, but if they're relying on him and and the Rockets are like, we'll give you a, you know, we'll give you the mid range one on one, but we're gonna stop the layups and the threes. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a little yeah. bit of a slower plotting offense, but when Steph is cooking and there's a little bit more downward momentum and they're running. You can just see like a world of 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 different offensive options open up for them, and they are they are absolutely unbeatable when they're playing that way. Yeah, I mean, well, and then on top of that, they they got good games from you know some of their bit players too, right? Like 
Uh, Kevon Looney earlier in the game had a crazy block on Luke Bamute, who I don't think will ever try to dunk again. But that might be the last we ever see of Luke Bamute. I like we him. We said that last game. Nice I don't know dude. what he's doing out there. Minus 28 for the night. I mean, I guess everybody's <laughs> minus 28 for the night. But like, what's up with the sac- yeah. ritual sacrifice of this guy? He can't lift his arm yeah, above his shoulders. <laughs> It's tough too because everybody everybody likes Luke. He's a great dude. He's a really good teammate. He's a good defender. And people always talk about him as this um like this glue guy and this intangible guy and get him the hell out of there because that wasn't good. Uh and then you have Nick Young running down the floor, like taking heat check threes. Uh and then also wearing did you see the shoes he was wearing? No, what was he wearing? Oh my god, this was uh such a Nick Young thing. He broke out the Benny Hanna Adidas Hibachi collaboration. <laughs> It's, it literally said that Gilbert Arenas wore these shoes. There's all, they've, they only made like a thousand of these, right? And so like Gilbert Arenas was the guy who came up with this weird monstrosity of a Frankenstein sneaker creation. And it, sa- it literally says hibachi acro- on the strap across the toe. So he was wearing those tonight. That was like the most interesting part of the game. So, so shouts to Nick Young. And shout out to the Benny Hanna in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Who doesn't like a Benny Hanna? Um, how how worried would you be though if you're the Rockets? Because as you mentioned, home court advantage matters. The Warriors already stole one in their building. They just got blown out by 31 uh, in their first game in Oakland, uh, and he didn't shoot well at all. Uh, Chris Paul doesn't look right. There's something going on with Chris Paul. How how worried would you be? Professional athletes, I, I don't know if they worry, quote unquote, as much as professional sports writers do, but. Yeah, uh, let's do that. I would say that this is this is the biggest game of the Rocket season by far coming up. It is a must-win game. They absolutely like cannot go back to Houston down three-one. There's no way the Warriors are going to lose three games in a row. So it's 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 actually like this is the series uh, on on Tuesday. I wonder about it because you can't win when you know you're getting twenty points from James Harden like. W- in the, earlier in the year, early in the playoffs, uh, when the Warriors were playing the Pelicans, I'd said to KOC, oh, you know, um, Anthony Davis had a good game. He went for like 22 and 12 or something. He's like, 22, they need 42 out of him. Similarly, James Harden, 20 points, you you need 40 out of James Harden. Chris Paul, he had 13 points. Uh, he only made two out of his eight three-pointers, five of his 16 shots from the floor. It wasn't a good game. He, he, there's, there's something wrong there. Like there's been hints about whether or not he's he's fully healthy. He says he's fine. Maybe he isn't. But whether he's healthy or whether he isn't, they need both of those guys to carry them. Because if they don't, it's going to be over right quick. Like you said, I mean, this is the biggest game coming up. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, you've been around basketball teams for a really long time. You've been in locker rooms. And I don't know if these guys ever talk about it, but there is something, there has to be something to a collective series psychology. If you're the Rockets and you know you're playing again in 48 hours and this is going to be a hostile Oracle crowd, and when you get, you know that game three is going to be an absolute cauldron walking in there and everybody's going to want the best from the Warriors. But the game to win is game four, right? You've got to, you've got to take, you've got to steal one in Oakland if you want to have a hope in this series do you think that the rockets are actually saying to themselves like look man like whatever happens happens in game three but the game that we all have to get a 40 point james harden game and a triple double chris paul irritant game and everything else that's got to be game four and I, I not to say that they punted on this at all like they there was a one point in the, in the second quarter even i was like oh they're kind of like they're sticking around but that third that third quarter uh title wave wiped them out 
But do you think that there's anything to teams kind of looking at the long game within a series, even if that long game is like, if you lose that, other, you lose game three, you're now, you have no more mistakes left. I think they're, I mean, they're human and they're not stupid, right? They like, they know that there's seven games. It's kind of like, like Ty Lu when they came back uh, down 0-2, he was like, look, you know, it's obviously an important game, but even if we lose it, it's still not game seven. There's still going to be more games after this. So, you know, we have to win. We want to win, but it's not like it's, you know, win or go home. So I think that they, yeah, I mean, I think it would be natural enough to go, this is an important game, but there's a difference. I I think what you said about it, not them not punting on it is right. I don't think they go into the game and go, eh, it's no big deal. But I do think it, it carries less urgency to it. Like, I would be really surprised if they came out that flat in game four because they know exactly what's at stake. Yeah, I kind of almost look at it as like a group of people doing the same thing that LeBron doesn't get, like the rest while playing thing. And that they were almost mm. like, they have to know what their body needs to play twice in 48 hours at the highest possible level. And, you know, Mike D'Antonio, I just saw, called them soft tonight. Like, he obviously wasn't happy with their performance. Nobody would be. They got absolutely shellacked. But I wonder if there's a little bit of, like, what they're thinking about Tuesday. And they're thinking about the fact that they're playing one of the probably the two greatest teams ever assembled and that Mm -hmm. they are going to need their best possible game at the most important possible moment. And if they leave it all out on the court and lose by 11 you know, on, on a Sunday night. Yeah. What if they don't have their fastball on Tuesday night? I, I'm just trying, I'm just grasping at straws because I think what we've seen a lot in these playoffs, just to go back to what you were saying in the beginning, is a bunch of uncompetitive games because one team is playing like a kind of series-long chess rather than like, we're going to dive after every loose ball. We're going to leave it all out there tonight. We're dying on this hill. I keep thinking about, remember earlier in the year, you might have commissioned it. It might have been Varier. I forget which editor, but we were all sitting around and we were talking about the Warriors and like how uninterested they were in the whole regular season proceedings. And so uh, it was like, okay, we'll go out and talk to them about this. And initially I thought to myself, well, that's a bad idea because like who's, what professional athlete is going to give you a straight up response to that? And instead almost to a man and including Steve Kerr, every single one of them were, were like, yeah, man, we're bored as hell. And I think we forgot what it was like when the Warriors are fully engaged because they're clearly like into all of this and they're locked in and they're scary when they are. And like there was a moment there during the regular season where where I think like we were looking at the Rockets and maybe not overvaluing them. They had an amazing regular season, but regular season and playoffs are much different. And when the Warriors are locked in and healthy, it's night and day. Yeah, I think that, you know, I found... Durant's performance in game one to be a sort of a little bit of a manifestation of what you were talking about, because I felt like this is a guy we've heard him on tons of bill pods over the last year or so talking about like his obsession with hooping. And you can tell that like he has like a real competitive fire in him that is a very like pure basketball competitive fire. Like he just wants to be challenged and then like face that challenge. And in some ways, like the the move that he made in free agency is the thing that's keeping that from happening on a regular basis. But in game one, I thought that he was really like, they need me tonight and I'm going to do it. And he did it. He was just an absolute assassin on game one. And I think that that is sort of what we saw from a, on a team level from the Warriors tonight. They had their crowd. They did not have home court advantage in this series. It's probably the first time that they can remember not having home court advantage in a series in the last three years. And I thought that they really played 
played like the dominant force in sports that they are tonight. They looked like a dynasty tonight. And I guess I get, yeah. the, the thing I'm trying to get at, and this is a little bit meta, but we are always sort of it, pushing like for how do we talk about this team? How do we talk about this team? And I think part of the issue is that when we go back and we look at some of the Jordan stuff, they all have these iconic moments like, Byron Russell, Craig Elo, and, you know, none of us can really recall, like, what the game two was like, except for Bill, who has, like, a photographic memory for this stuff. Do you <laughs> think does. that in 20 years we're going to look back and we'll have iconic moments, especially of the Durant Warriors? Or do you think that this is going to be, like, what happens when dynastic teams go too far and, like, the spirit of competition kind of gets sucked out a little bit? I don't know. I, I like that's that's a really good question. I think like we we tend to sort of romanticize the Jordan era uh, Bulls because of Jordan and and how great he was. But there was some of that back then. There was a lot of that back then, right? Where you knew there was inevitability to it, where you wanted the series to be competitive and you wanted, say, the Utah Jazz to be a good competition for them. But you knew they weren't, right? And yeah. you knew. Uh, you knew that eventually they were going to get to the playoffs and that the Utah Jazz would, you know, fight as hard as they could and then Jordan was going to dispatch them. And, like, in retrospect, we we think back about, like, how amazing those basketball games were, but they weren't really entertaining, right? They were entertaining in that, like, Jordan was so dominant he could will his team to victory on any given night. But I don't know that they were necessarily, like, fun to watch. I, I, I w we would have to, go, like, go back and watch them. I think, like, eventually we'll look back on this period and go, wow, they were really amazing, and they were dynastic, and how fascinating wa uh, was it that they could uh, play that well whenever they wanted to, when they were really focused. But ultimately, was it entertaining? Was it good for the league? Is it? it well, I mean, we've been barreling towards Rockets Warriors all season long. This is what we wanted, right? We were like, okay, this is going to be the actual finals. The Rockets represent the best chance to beat the Warriors. But do they? I don't know. I mean, I, I honestly don't think that anybody has a prayer against the Durant version of the Warriors. I, I just don't. I just don't know how you defend it. I don't know how you stop it. You saw it tonight. Mm -hmm. That's a... That's one of the best offensive teams in league history that they played against tonight. And they just, the way that they go about their business and the way that they can present problems and like exploit, like every single thing about modern basketball is something that they do well. Yeah. Stretching the floor, positional flexibility, um, allowing uh, your 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 players to play within a, a system that encourages ball movement and player movement, but also accentuates individual accomplishments. Like you get to see Steph do step back threes from 35 feet, which you're yeah. not supposed to do, you know? It, like they're rule breakers and they're rule followers and they rewrite the rules and all these things that are going to be things that we talk about probably for the rest of our professional careers is when we watch the Warriors and what the Warriors did to basketball. But I think that what we're seeing in a little bit is like, Shark said this too in Slack. This is what LeBron was supposed to do in 2010 was have this yeah. unbeatable team. And what happened was for a lot of different reasons, that didn't quite happen. It didn't happen in the first season and it didn't happen in the last season he was there. And the Warriors just don't look that vulnerable. They, they seem impervious to outside narrative chatter. The most you can do is just be like, "What about Draymond? You know, is he going to keep his head?" Like that's not a that's not you, that's not even a concern troll. Like like that that's not it. I know that's not the same thing as like look LeBron not being able to take a team over the top. It's it's just wild that this is where we're at. It is wild, and like it's so crazy to say this, but the the Houston Rockets won sixty five 
games. They've got the presumptive heavy, heavy, heavy favorite going to win the MVP in James Harden. And I look at their roster right now. I'm staring at it right now. And I'm like, oh, they, they don't have enough. We should have seen this all year. Like they just, they don't have enough because of all the things you just said. The Warriors have better personnel and their system and the way that they adjust and their defense. And they're just better at every level at everything. Uh, They can play by the rules and then they can create their own and the Rockets don't have enough. And that's a crazy thing to say about the team that was the best team in the league with the MVP. I mean, has that ever happened in league history? has Has the best team in the league during the regular season with the MVP, the best player, looked like, okay, yeah, we don't have enough. It's crazy. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of a time when that happened. I mean, I think Iverson won the MVP the 01 year, and I don't remember how wh- how many wins the Sixers wound up with that season in 01, but I mean, nobody thought they had a prayer against Kobe and Shaq. I mean, this is this is kind right. of like what I'm talking about. So you're, you're going back to that era of... Well, they just have two guys or three guys that make it so that you, no matter what you do, you can't beat them. This, this is the one last thing I wanted to talk to you about because I do think that we're going to hear a little bit about this as this the next as the week goes on, especially if these two conference finals get away from us. If I don't know what's going to happen to these, you're going to talk to Justin and Tate about that. But if this one winds up being four one, I wonder if we'll hear a little bit more chatter about tweaking the playoffs whether it's bringing back the five-game opening series or something, because this is rough. You know what I mean? Like, you want... you. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious to know... Or or maybe you and I are being too neurotic about this and kids everywhere are drawing <laughs> Steph Curry on a piece of paper and playing with him in Fortnite tonight. And I don't... I don't you know what I mean? Like, maybe we're, we're just being too worry, worry warts about it. I, I don't know that it's, like, neurotic or being worry warts about it. I think it's just, you know... God damn it, wouldn't it be nice to have a foil, right? Like, yeah. it's great to have a hero, but it's also, you can't have a hero without, like, a counterbalance. You have to have something for them to charge against and fight against, and this thing seems baked, and it's felt baked for a while, and I think, like, for a moment there, we we kind of kitted ourselves into believing that it wasn't baked and that it was going to be close, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe the Rockets will pull it out in Game 4 and, and we'll reverse course again because there's a lot of recency bias in the playoffs. Uh, before I let you go, give me a prediction for Game 4. You think that they're going to come out and do I think it's uh, a, I think it's a Warriors things, right? win that's close. I think it's a war. I would think it's a Warriors win that's in single digits. And I and, and, and I cannot wait. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm I, I'd rather just, like, hit Sim in my life to get to Tuesday night. I want to see it. I want to see these two teams. That first quarter, or the first two quarters, really, of the first game, I thought were just some of the most sumptuous basketball I've ever seen. You know, and I so I, I can't wait for it, but I, I think the Warriors have them. I just think, I just don't know if the Rockets have enough more, en- enough room to make the mistakes that are going to be natural to make. It's just the Warriors just will feed on your mistakes. They'll just feast on them. They do. They they love to feed on them. It's unfortunate because uh, the Rockets are serving themselves up right now. I hope you're right. I hope it's a well. I, I hope it's a close game. I, I mean, I don't really care one way or the other. Uh, I think it would be better for basketball, for the NBA, for these playoffs if the Rockets did pull it out and make a series of it. Uh, I hope it's a close game. I just feel like we're we're headed for another rock for another Warriors win, and that this thing is going to be over. But. Uh, keeping my fingers crossed, Chris Ryan, you have uh, many other things going on this week. You've got The Watch, right? Is it a source to say The week? Watch, uh, well, I should say The Rewatchables is coming back tomorrow. Uh, I believe it'll be up tomorrow. 
Maybe maybe it's on the 24th. I can't remember when they're going to get it up, but it, we're recording Social Network tomorrow. So excited for that. Oh, one. excellent. Yeah. This is fun. You've got uh, The Watch, Rewatchable Social Network. You've got Group Chat. Uh, you were on Heat Check. You just basically don't stop talking here at The Ringer. It's wonderful. Yeah. One of these days, my voice is just going to go. I'm going to completely outlive my usefulness. <laughs> It'll be great. You can just mime things on a podcast. It'll be excellent. Chris Ryan, thanks for doing this, buddy. I appreciate you it. You got it, man. All right, we're going to get to Justin Verrier and Tate Frazier in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsors. Today's Heat Check is brought to you by ADT. Is your home an ADT home? If not, get ADT and help protect against break-ins, fire, carbon monoxide. And for a limited time, get ADT's lowest rate starting at just $28.99 a month. From the most trusted name in home security, that's just a dollar a day. ADT is the first security company to help keep you safe at home and when you're on the go with the new ADT Go app. Not to mention, ADT Go also offers a family locator, private messaging, automatic check-ins, and safe driving reports. It even includes an SOS button with a 24-7 emergency response, and you get ADT Go with a purchase of any security system. Go to ADT.com slash podcast to take advantage of ADT's lowest rate. ADT, tested, trusted, proven. With a 36-month monitoring contract, early termination and installation fees apply, excludes taxes and fees, applies to traditional services only, certain markets are excluded, licenses available at ADT.com. Heat Check is also brought to you by Ladder Life. If you're looking for life insurance, check out Ladder. It's the quick and easy way to get life insurance online. It's the 21st century. You shouldn't have to wait for weeks to get your life insurance in place. With Ladder Life, there are no commissioned agents and no policy fees. You can be done in minutes. Visit ladderlife.com NBA and answer a few quick questions to get a free quote. If you like what you see, you can apply and get an instant decision on fully underwritten life insurance in less than 10 minutes. Coverage can start today if you qualify. Ladder provides customers with a quick application process that saves you time and frustration because you answer only the questions that are relevant to you. Coverage is available from $100,000 up to $8 million. Ladder's dynamic life insurance lets you get something in place now and apply for more or decrease your coverage with no penalties and fees later on. With Ladder Life, you get instant decisions and instant peace of mind. Visit ladderlife.com NBA to get a free quote and get life insurance checked off your list today. And now, let's bring in Justin and Tate. Boom shakalaka! He's heating up! He's on fire! All right, joining me on the other line, uh, he's a repeat offender here at Heat Check. He's from Group Chat. He's an editor. He's a writer. Justin Verrier is here. And for the first time ever on Heat Check, super famous. He's got many podcasts. He's gracing us with his presence. It's Tate Frazier. Tate Frazier, what's going on? Thanks for having me, John. I, I, I feel so blessed to be here. It's been a long time <laughs> coming to be on Heat Check, but I'm sitting right now. We have six national championships since 2000 in the room, UConn and North Carolina. So I feel really good about that, too. That's right. This is the dynamic duo that <laughs> podcasting needs in the world. Yes, absolutely. I'm excited to unite you two as a super team. I went to LaSalle and they made it to the Sweet 16 one time, and that was fun. Oh, that's cute. No, they had a they had a a championship from like the 50s when I think they played with a medicine ball. And yeah, a sleeping basket, giant. But... LaSalle was a sleeping giant for me, so <laughs> I understand. I believe in LaSalle. I think they're going to come back. 
right, man. It's a lot of LaSalle talk on the Heat Check podcast. My Philly heads will be thrilled. Uh, Tate Frazier, also, Barry, did you know about this, that he had uh, his wisdom teeth out and he's, he's playing hurt today? Yeah, I'm fully medicated right now. So anything I say, uh, take with a grain of salt. Uh, I, I'm trying to come in and be as clear-headed as possible. But yeah, my wisdom teeth are out. I've lost all the wisdom that I have uh, in my head at this point. But I, I'm just happy to talk about the NBA because I never get to do this. So this will be fun. If Tate's LeBron takes are particularly hot, that's why. It's <laughs> definitely because of the medicine, yes. not because of what he thinks in his heart. These are performance dehancing <laughs> drugs. <laughs> well, we're going to get into that uh, because... Simmons texted me and he's like, you should have Tate on. He hates LeBron. And I'm like, all right, cool, man. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll have him on. But we're going we're gonna to get into that. Uh, so the Cleveland Cavaliers, they were down 0-2. They come back to Cleveland. I am in Cleveland. Uh, they ended up uh, blowing out because every game in the playoffs evidently has to be a blowout. They ended up blowing out the uh, Celtics to climb back into the series. Now it's 2-1. They went on a 24-run to start game three. They won by 30. It felt like the Cavs were kind of white-knuckling it a little bit to start. It was it was the first time in 10 years since LeBron uh, like 1.0 that they started an Eastern Conference playoff series down 0-2. And they seemed like they were sweating it in practice, and Ty Lue wasn't in a good mood. And they really, I felt like, needed that game. Yeah, I, I thought J.R. Smith's quote was pretty prescient. J.R. Smith, uh, the noted philosopher of, of the Cleveland Cavaliers, yeah. just pointing out <laughs> yeah. that like the extra three of days. The <laughs> yes, of the world. Uh, just that they had the extra three days, and for an old team like that, it makes a difference. And not to be reductive, but I think it made a lot of a difference, especially when you go up against a Celtics team that as we know, it has been able to counterbalance them on the defensive end, just the way that they've been versatile, the way they've been switching all the time. But they are still young, and they looked at very much like that uh, in the first quarter. What I learned is LeBron made a conscious effort to get his teammates involved. That's what it is. He, he's been having efforts, but they've been subconscious. But in this game, he made the con- conscious effort to get everyone involved. He's the reason that George Hill played so well. He's the reason that JR played so well. He's the reason that the team hit 17 threes. He's the reason that Kyle Korver is back and better than ever. I think he, what was he, like four for five from the field or something like that? Maybe even five for five from the field. Um, he he had a great game. And you know, I, I think it was more about we knew that LeBron James was not going to lose game three being down 0-2. That's just not what was going to happen in Cleveland. They came out they made a statement I, I thought the the most surprising thing was LeBron was deferring to everyone else and trying to get everyone else involved and it, it led to them playing better defensively as a team which was impressive yeah he was an absolute killer I mean he's LeBron right so he can take over a game whenever he wants but you're absolutely right Tate Frazier that like that was a game where he scored 27 points on 12 sh- shots so he was super efficient but there were so many times when he was getting guys involved and making crazy passes he had 12 assists that led to 30 points you mentioned JR he had one uh LeBron had one drive where he drove like deep 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 into the paint jumped up turned around and fired like a, a two-handed pass kick out to JR for a wide open 3 and JR made it and just kind of shrugged and laughed it off and I was like, that's the LeBron they need right now. They need a guy who's going to get all of them involved. He made sure to help George Hill get off early. George Hill hadn't had a good game one or game two. Um, also, LeBron had a, several amazing dunks, including that one on the dude in the MAGA hat behind the Celtics bench, <laughs> which I thought was excellent. So it was a great LeBron game. Yeah, I think it definitely had a trickle-down effect to the defensive end as well. It seemed like once LeBron realized that guys like George Hill were going to get involved, were going to be able to carry their weight on that end, he seemed to spend more time on the defensive end trying to lock down his end. And it seemed like their game plan going in was to put him on Marcus Smart more so he could freelance a little bit more. And you saw how much that screwed up what the Celtics 
Celtics want to do because they were able to stay small against that bigger lineup with Tristan Thompson at the center. Well, when the offense wasn't going, they couldn't get the looks that they could in the second game. Uh, it seemed like Brad Stevens was more willing to go to some of those big guys. And all of a sudden, you have Yebiseli playing early minutes. You have Greg Monroe showing up from the middle of nowhere, and it really threw off what they were able to do. My favorite part of the game, honestly, was when uh, Gershon came into the game, and it was like three straight possessions. And I thought Aaron Baines was going to throw him out of the game. He was so frustrated with how <laughs> lost he was on the court. I mean, it was like three back-to-back-to-back bad plays. Baines is yelling at Stevens to take him out of the game. He's like, why is he even out here? And you talk about Monroe coming in. Just all these lineups that the Celtics had in this game just seemed really off. And I know that, you know, Rogier was having some problems, taking some early shots. So I think Stevens, you know, pulled him a little bit early. And then you also had the, the situation with Jalen Brown getting into foul trouble. So everything that could go wrong went wrong for the Celtics, it felt like, in Game 3. And for the Cavs, it, it just finally seemed to click for the first time. And they actually seemed like they liked each other, which I thought was pretty funny. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, you never know on any given day how they're going to respond to each other. I'm not ready, though. I'm not letting you off the hook, Tate Frazier. We're not, we're not past LeBron yet. Because, uh, like I said, you're on the podcast because apparently you have some very strong LeBron feelings, and I need to know about them. Well, it's not like something that, that popped up recently where I was watching LeBron and I was like, you know what? I really don't like the way this guy plays basketball. We, we've known LeBron forever. We've, we've watched him, you know, more than a game. We've, we've seen him since 03. I, I know all about LeBron. I, I think the thing that I talk about as far as my <laughs> disdain for LeBron that does come out sometimes is the conversation about Michael Jordan and LeBron, which I think is not only unfair to LeBron, I think it's unfair to Michael Jordan. I, I don't like having those cross-generational uh, comparisons and conversations, even though they can be fun at times. I mean, but you you got it. It's gotten so outrageous right now that we have Shannon Sharp, you know, on a show calling LeBron James God. You know, like that, that, that's how far we've gotten with the LeBron conversation. It's it's like we want to defend him so much. And, uh, you know, I don't you, think he— Wait, need- you're, telling me, you're telling me that a Fox Sports host was hyperbolic? I don't believe it. I just I just don't think we need to defend LeBron as you know as viscerally and as much as we do because he is so great. I mean those passes that he was making that you mentioned with his left hand that's unbelievable. That's amazing. It, it, you know, that's that's what you want to see from a great player like him. I believe that he is the best player of the decade. I've I've never said anything other than that. But uh I, I just feel like it's unfair to him and I I've always said he's more like a Kareem than he is like uh, Michael Jordan. He's gonna have all these records. <laughs> Wait, hold on. He's, he's gonna. He's, he's gonna, more Kareem. He's gonna <laughs> than Jordan. He's gonna. He's gonna break Kareem's field goal record in the playoffs, right? I think he needs like six more field goals. Once sure. he breaks that record, he's gonna have the argument on paper to be better than Michael Jordan, which is great. In the same way that how many Percocets <laughs> did he pop during the podcast? <laughs> just two. Just two. Um, no, but I will say this: I the Kareem versus Jordan argument was a great argument, and it was the, it was the exact same way where it, it does not translate and you can't really have it. But we're doing the same thing now with Jordan to LeBron, which is the perfect example of why LeBron is great because we go from Kareem to Jordan, Jordan to LeBron. He's in that conversation and that should be enough. I don't feel like we have to crown him even though he is the king. We don't have to crown him and say that he is number one. We just have to say, hey, he's in the conversation and that's impressive. You know, I, I've known Tate for upwards of 10 minutes now and I, 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 he's just a simple man. You know, he likes his vegetables to not touch his steak. He likes to have his ice cream vanilla at, at oh, 10 man. p.m. specifically this, every night. Come on. Come on. All this LeBron James talk, it, it's not fair to his teammates. That's the other thing. We're like, I, I just find it unfair that George Hill hits a three and they're like, what a play by LeBron. <laughs> well, like, Le- to Le- be Le- fair, that was Le- the Le- first play that George Hill made the entire postseason. LeBron had nothing to do with the play. He didn't even run on offense. He's staying back on defense and, the, and he gets credit for the play. That That's where I feel bad. That's where I understood Kyrie. That's the only thing I can say about that. Right. 
Jordan Clarkson doesn't get enough love. Yeah, uh, Jordan Clarkson gets plenty of self love. Jordan, nobody loves Jordan Clarkson more than Jordan Clarkson. Uh, <laughs> That's very true. I, I personally like, you know, I, I grew up obviously watching Michael Jordan. I'm of that era and think he's amazing. But I don't get worked up like everybody who likes to pick a side in these hot sports debates uh, with with their hot takes on Fox Sports or whatever. That uh-huh. doesn't do it for me. I like I, I know that sports and sports fandom is wholly without nuance and that everybody has to take a side. But I've always been of the, why can't we just enjoy nice things? Like I really loved watching Jordan and I really love watching LeBron. And the the part that I liked what Tate said was, you know, why do we have to sort of pit one against the other? Why does one have to be declared supreme over the other? That doesn't really, I don't, that's never really gotten it going for me. I will though ask, however, Tate Frazier about your LeBron takes. Uh, just remind everybody where you went to school again. <laughs> I did go to I did go to North Carolina, so there, there's a little bit of that. And oh, I will I, say I love watching LeBron <laughs> play, but I just love watching Michael Jordan play more. You see, I just can't separate LeBron from his impact on the game. Like you say, like we should give more credit to the guys around him, but the reason why it's getting spread around the way it does is because LeBron has had such an impact in the way that like gameplay is is going right now, whereas Jordan would rather punch his teammates in the face rather than pass him the ball. (laughs) LeBron LeBron is getting everyone involved, and that's one of his biggest assets. Speaking of people getting punched. Hold that that thought. I want to actually talk about how LeBron has gotten everybody involved, especially in Game 3. But first, we're going to take a quick timeout for a word from our sponsors. Today's Ringer NBA show Heat Check is brought to you by SeatGeek. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there's a simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're catching your favorite musician on tour, shopping for the perfect gift, or searching for a last-minute deal to see your favorite team, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. Nothing beats being there in person for the biggest plays of the year, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. It's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. I actually just use SeatGeek to buy uh, tickets to a Dodgers game because, you know, it's fun to go to baseball in the summer at Dodger Stadium. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports to concerts to comedy to theater. Best of all, our listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code RINGERNBA today. That's promo code RINGERNBA for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, right seat, right now, right from your phone. And now, back to HeatCheck. All right, still here with uh, Tate Frazier and Justin Barrier. And Tate Frazier not only has hot LeBron takes, and I want to get into how LeBron has made his teammates better, especially in Game 3, but somehow Tate has managed to link LeBron and and Jeff Van Gundy. Is that right? Well, we brought up the Jordan punching his teammates in the face, which is the the great Steve Kerr story that came out from a practice, I believe. But my favorite moment of this playoff so far is Jeff Van Gundy talking about how he woke up at 5 a.m. to watch the Royal Wedding. 
Jeff Van Gundy is a very strange man, as we know, but he, we love him to death. He wakes up yes. at 5 a.m. to watch the royal wedding. And then two minutes later, they show Chewbacca on the sideline, who's for some reason in <laughs> Cleveland at the game. And, and then that comes up and he goes, yeah, from Star Wars, never seen it. <laughs> so th- this man wakes up at 5 a.m. for the royal wedding, and he d- has never seen Star Wars in his life. That you know, that's a national treasure. And then it just brought up to the whole point. You you brought up punching, and I was watching uh, a- an old video today of Marcus Camby, and Danny Ferry hits him in the face. And this is back in like 2001, 2002, or something. It's surprising from Danny Ferry. Yeah, of course, classic Danny Ferry. And they're like, Danny Ferry is you know would never do something intentional. Then they play in slow motion. And he obviously did. And Camby's <laughs> trying to hit him. And as soon as he has, like, a little bit of a ray of sunshine to go at Danny Ferry, who has his back to him, Jeff Van Gunny sprints over like a Secret Service member protecting the president, gets in the way, and Camby ends up headbunting Van Gundy, misses Ferry. Van Gundy goes down for the count, is knocked out, and it just— there's so many great Van Gundy stories, and, and I feel like we just need to collect them all into one place because the man's <laughs> never seen Star Wars. He's been head-butted by Marcus Camby. It's just it's just a great. I, I enjoyed—the game was so boring, that game three, that I just had to listen to Jeff Van Gundy talk, and that was about the only entertainment I had. We need to get you and JVG on one of your many podcasts together. We need we need story time with Tate and Jeff Van Gundy. I'll come back on Heat Check with, with Varier and Van Gundy, and we'll really hash this thing out. Yeah, you really booked the wrong JV here. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Fair, fair enough. But about that supporting cast that Varier mentioned before we went to break and before we did story time with Tate, <laughs> we were talking about like how those guys were completely absent in game two, and the Cavs— Supporting cast had like they were horrendous from three point range in the first two games. They they made 14 threes out of 57 attempts. And then in game three, they made 17 threes. So they they beat their first two game total in one game uh in game three. And J.R. Smith got off and Kevin Love got off and Kyle Corver looked good and George Hill was involved. Do we buy it? Is this replicable? Can they keep it going? Do you like we've been wondering of this about the Cavs supporting cast all season long? Yeah, this is the problem with the playoffs because I don't know which law of averages to believe in anymore mm-hmm. because the Cavs were yeah. a really good three-point shooting team this season. So you'd assume that this is probably the team that we can expect going forward. Having said that, both teams weren't particularly good road teams. And as Tate and I were discussing before we came on here, it almost seems like we're gonna we're in for maybe a seven-game series now where you have a young team in the Celtics that can't go on the road and you have a team with the like the Cavs who are just awful in certain situations and just fall apart in situations. And so they won't be able to play in Boston with that crowd and the way they're able to mount comebacks uh, there. And so I don't know what to believe, but it is an encouraging sign yeah. that this Cavs team still exists. And the Cavs like to play with a lead. And I think that was the problem in game two in Boston. LeBron came out and he said to himself, I have to get us a lead. I have to be the main one. And that didn't quite work out. Obviously, he still had a great game. It was like, what, 41, 12, and 12, something crazy like that. But... If the Cavs are able to go to Boston in Game 5 or in Game 7, LeBron, I I mean, I'm not going to bet against LeBron in this series. I I felt the whole time, even though that they were down 0-2, that Cleveland would be able to figure it out. They win Game 3, but if they're able to still, they're going to steal one game of Boston. I mean, maybe maybe it's Game 5, maybe it's LeBron doing it in Game 7. It might be similar to what we saw in 2012 when he was on the Heat, when they were down and he went back to Boston and wins that Game 6. Maybe something like that happens. I don't know. But I, I do think this Cleveland team has figured it out enough where Kevin Love is now the number two option. I think that they were smart to get Kevin Love away from Al Horford. That was a horrible matchup. We all saw that in the first two games. Like, why is Kevin Love guarding Al Horford? T- Tristan Thompson's done a great job on Al Horford. Morris did a poor yeah. job on LeBron for the first time uh, in game three. He, I think he even said after the game he did a bad job. Um, so I, I don't know. I feel like Cleveland's figuring it out. And I think LeBron 
and Kevin Love are both sort of on the same page. If Kevin Love gets rebounds and is able to help on the offensive end, at least be a threat, then I then I really believe in the Cavs. I think they can do it. I hope that it's a series. I really do, because I was talking about this with Chris, and I could really use some competitive playoff basketball at this point. <laughs> like I would keep harping on this point, but I we just want to see I just want to see if, even if it's not good single games where the two teams show up at the same time, even if it just gets us to a game six or seven and it looks like it's going to be a series, that would be great. And you mentioned whether or not the Cavs can steal one on the road. Boston has been awesome at home. They haven't lost yet these playoffs at home. They're 10-0 at home. They're just one in five on the road. And they looked really, I mean, like, you know, their their, uh, net rating at home is obviously much better than it is on the road in the playoffs. And Brad Stevens had said, like, he doesn't care where the games are played. That shouldn't matter. But they clearly do because Boston came out and, like, game three, man, they, they shot uh, sub 40% from the floor. They only made six of their 22 threes. They got crushed on the boards. Jalen Brown was, like, really one of the only guys who showed up. You know, he, he made more than one three-pointer, and Jason Tatum looked uh, good but not good enough. And you mentioned Al Horford, and uh, it all of a sudden— like Marcus Smart, who was doing Marcus Smart things in the first two mm-hmm. games, he didn't have a good game. And now all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, okay, like after the first two games, it looked like Boston was just going to roll them. And now I'm like cautiously optimistic that we've got a series. Yeah, I guess they just need Drew Bledsoe in attendance for the Celtics really to get up for this game. Because I was definitely <laughs> disappointed that the Celtics didn't have a counterpunch in them late in the first or even in the second quarter. Because even when they got down a little bit None. in that game too, they were able to rally back. There's something about the crowd, something about the way they play. They're very scrappy, the way that they're kind of like embracing this whole underdog thing. Like Terry Rozier is just telling, selling uh, t-shirts out of the back of his van these days. Just so, something about him, yeah. just, it all works. And the Cavs throughout the, those first two losses were very confident, almost to the point of arrogance. And it, and I was starting to wonder what LeBron was actually thinking. And we saw why in this game three. It's just when they have things going, they could just put it together. And a young team like the Celtics kind of wilted in the face of that. And it's one of those things, too, where we talked about this before we got on the air. But role players and young players in the playoffs— it, when you're at home, it's easy. Everything comes naturally. You're used to it. You're in an environment. You understand. When you go on the road, you tighten up. And if things aren't going right, like what happened, even Jalen Brown, you know, in that game, he gets in foul trouble early. They seem defeated pretty early mm-hmm. in that game. And once Cleveland gets rolling, I mean, it, it's hard to stop that. Once LeBron gets going and they're all confident, it's, it's hard to stop. Yeah, there's shots of uh, Jalen Brown sitting on the sideline looking not happy. <laughs> Uh, I, th- I think said it all, but I was really surprised that Boston's defense looked so bad because in the first two games they were like running the Cavs off the three point line, and uh, the the Cavs were talking about how switchable and long they are on de- on defense and like how they were giving them fits, and um, they were forcing them to play at a much slower pace than the Cavs wanted to. And, you know, like Kevin O'Connor and I were talking about this on last week's Heat Check where we were like, well, the adjustment to make is to go big and get more Tristan Thompson, but really. They, yes, they put in Tristan Thompson, and yes, he got some time, and yes, he was playing Al Horford well. But really, they kind of doubled down on playing faster. They were like, "We're not gonna, we're not gonna play slow against them and play well. That's their game. So we're gonna try to get the ball in faster on makes. We're gonna definitely push it on misses. We're gonna run to our spots and hunt three point shots, and it worked for them. And I just was surprised that Boston's defense didn't adjust in game. 
LeBron in space is just so terrifying. And you saw when George Hill, it seems so ridiculous to say that George Hill just opens things up for this team. But if you have one other guy outside of Corver and, and, and love kind of producing on the wings and providing him like more opportunities to get things going, you could see what it does on both ends of the court. Um, Gans, I'm wondering from your point of view, just being there, like, what is the vibe now? Does it feel like the Cavs are confident? Oh, well, when I was first here, when I first got here, I don't think that they, like when you were saying that they were uh, arrogant, that might have been true. But I don't know that they were used to the situation that they were in because like Kevin Love and Kyle Korver flat out said that there were several moments in the series where things weren't going their way. And they were frustrated and they let that get the better of them. And I'm like, that's not normally something that professional athletes admit to uh, in front of the media. Uh, so they, I definitely think that they were sweating it. Maybe that motivated them. But whatever, like, whatever the vibe was before, now I think they are confident. And I definitely think Cavs fans are confident. Like I was walking uh, on the concourse of the arena at halftime to go get some chicken fingers. And people were like, yeah, I wonder, can we win this game? Like, can we just rattle off four straight right now? Like they were just like laughing and having a great time. And like Cavs fans are back. Do you think Michael Jordan would be arrogant in this situation? <laughs> I don't think he'd be arrogant. He was, it was just, you know, instilled confidence and belief in himself. Uh, but I, I, will, I will say about uh, the Cavs, right? So they're down 0-2. The Celtics have never lost a series when they're up 2-0. Right in history, I don't think I think they're thirty-seven and zero. They've never yeah. lost a series. And then LeBron has done this. This only happened nineteen times in history. LeBron's done it twice already: mm-hmm. twenty sixteen and two thousand seven. I mean, it just feels like this is the perfect thing for LeBron to do. Well, you know what I mean? Le- LeBron defies. You know, no matter what you could say about the Celtics scene without them having Kyrie Hayward, whatever it may be, the fact that they were down 0-2, and if they were able to rip off four straight. I, I think uh, that that seems very LeBron-like. Right, to and, do. and the la- the first time he did it was in that, like you mentioned, 2007 Eastern Conference Finals against the Pistons. There are shades of that team a little bit in the Celtics team where it's just all defense and you're kind of scrapping something together on offense. So you could definitely see history almost repeating itself in a little yeah. bit. Yeah, and 2016, obviously, too. So it's yeah. like, uh, I, I don't know. I, I feel like, I, I know Celtics fans are going to be very upset to hear us to be so biased after seeing Game 3 and completely switch, but... Even when they were down 2-0, I, I was like, it, it was good to hold home court advantage if you're the Celtics. That's all you can try to do. But you know that you're probably going to have to go to 6 or 7 with LeBron. He's not going out in 5. They look like such a different team in Boston. I'm not, like, I hear you on the uh, the Celtics have never lost after being up 2-0. Howard Beck pointed out that uh, LeBron isn't playing against Larry Bird and Kevin Garnett and, <laughs> and uh, Kevin McHale and those guys, though, so I'm not sure exactly what to do with that, but I will mm-hmm. ask you guys this. Let's recalibrate our series uh, predictions. Give me a prediction for uh, Game 4 and then for the series. I think the Cavs are going to win this game, but I think the Celtics are going to win the series overall just because they have home court advantage and it's going to be tough even with the way the Cavs are playing to overcome a 2-0 deficit as we just laid out. I think it's going to go to seven games. I think LeBron is going to come close to winning and stealing the game five. They're going to go go back to Cleveland, get that win, and then he's going to win game seven. Yeah, I picked the Cavs before the series. Uh, it def- I was definitely sweating it after the first two games. The Celtics look like an absolutely unbeatable team, and now they don't. 
So I'm going to stick with that. I don't know how many games, but I think the Cavs are going to win uh, game four on Monday night, and then we'll go from there. Uh, before I let you guys go, I just wanted to uh, pass this note along. Uh, Tate, Shea Serrano says you should give him a podcast. He thinks it's dirty. You haven't yet. I, I have tried I have tried and tried and tried to get people to give him a podcast. I promise. Shay, he Shay doesn't, does, he doesn't believe speak, you. We're not even on speaking terms anymore because of how hard I worked for him, how hard I tried. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's been tough. It's been a tough journey. I want him to have a podcast. If anyone out there wants sure to have a podcast, know. reach out to all the people in the Ringer universe that you love and adore and say <laughs> Shea Serrano deserves a podcast. We have lots of podcasts here at The Ringer, as you mentioned, and you want to make sure that you want to listen to all the NBA show podcasts coming up this week. We've got Kevin and Verno, then we've got Group Chat, we've got Draft Class, and we've got Bill Simmons. And then next week's Heat Check will be from Parts Unknown. I don't know where I'm going to be. I'm like The Ringer's uh, Papa Shango that way. It's a WWE <laughs> reference for all my uh, WWE heads out there. But uh, we'll have plenty of basketball, so make sure to check out all of that and read all of our stuff on The Ringer. I want to say thanks to Chris Ryan for doing this. Thanks very much to Justin Verrier and Tate Frazier, and of course, our producer, Isaac Lee. And a special congrats to Kevin Clark, who was married this weekend. We're happy for him and his lovely bride, Emily. Thanks so much for listening, everybody, to Heat Check. We will be back next week. Bye.